I got so much out of the game of basketball, so many incredible memories, and there's so much more to life that's important to me that I'm busy living, not busy looking in the past and seeing what I what I accomplished and what I didn't accomplish. Before they get in your business, be in charge of your business. Own it cause it's your business, your business, business. Handle all in your business, value all in your business. You say your money, your business, my business. What's up, what's up, good people? Welcome back. And I'm saying welcome back to Montgomery and Company because I'm assuming that you watched Steve Nash's interview yesterday and you're coming back because you want to see the rest, the other half of it. So welcome back. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. That's good for our, man, we just need the love. So speaking of that, I don't usually say these things, but I need to start saying these things. So please follow, like, subscribe, turn on your notifications. Like, I don't know how the algorithms are going to act. So I'm just asking you to do that because we got a lot of heat coming up on the show, even starting with this conversation with Steve. I mean, the Hall of Famer, he talks about it all. The mind of an athlete, block training, everything. It's time. Let's go. Point guard to point guard. This is lit. I'm telling you right now because you're one of those players that everybody knows who you are. Everybody knows what you've done. Two-time MVP, which doesn't happen from the point guard position. So, Steve Nash, welcome to the show. Thank you, Renee. It's great to be here. Big fan of yours. Oh, please. Listen, y'all get me hype up in here. But listen, it's NBA playoffs (laughs) right now. And the NBA playoffs are going on right now. And we've seen some game sevens. You played in four Game 7s during your NBA career, two with the Phoenix Suns in 2005 and 2006, and two with the Dallas Mavs in 2003 and six. And so I'm just curious because when you've already played against a team six games, what is your mindset? What are the things you're keying in on on that Game 7? You know, that's, that's why, you know, people say Game 7 is like the greatest phrase in sports, you know, because... <laughs> Like if you play a one-off elimination game, it can be great. You know, it's it's still everything's on the on the table and, and it's high pressure and high stakes. But when you play a team seven straight times, you know, and it takes like two weeks or more, you know, there's more on the table. You know, because now it's personal. You know, you've been going at them and they've been going at you for, like I said, two weeks. And so it's a really special opportunity to kind of finish a series in dramatic and, and emphatic fashion when when everything's on the line like that. So it's kind of like such a unique situation that it's really almost hard to prepare or to visualize. You have to go through it in a sense. Um, it's about controlling your emotions. You know, it's about being present. And, and fortunately, I think everyone has a different psychological makeup. You know, Definitely. we, some people are probably like a, scared before the game some people are like just so confident and then it, it all kind of meets back in the middle when the what game were starts you? What, what was your energy uh, i think i was like in the middle i was like <laughs> confident but also anxious i was definitely kind of had nerves and anxiety but also confident and you know i think for me i always kind of had this thing like i hope like luck is on your side as well like i know i've done the preparation but you know how it is you have good games bad games the ball goes it doesn't go whatever like that stuff happens too so i always kind of almost had this like part of me that was thinking cosmically like what's happening and you know what's gonna how's this gonna play out i know i'm ready i know we're ready but you never know how the ball bounces and so unfortunately that's probably a waste of energy because you don't have any control over that anyways but (laughs) 
Sounds good though, but you're going to waste that energy. It sounds good, but you, you, you are, you are going to waste the energy no matter what, because it's a stressful thing, but that is the best feeling in the world to have that stress and to have it all on the line. And there's nothing better. You know, I coached a game seven a couple of years ago against, uh, uh, with the nets against, um, the bucks. And, uh, you know, we went to overtime in game seven, Katie towed the line on a three Toe on the line. <sighs> yeah. Um, but I just remember like, how badly I wish I could have played. For real, I was going to ask that. So you be what, like in those big moments, you want to be out there because it's like, is it the control thing? Because you know that you're ready and could like control and do things that you wanted to do. Okay, let me let me be clear. Like I really didn't want to be out there because I know those <laughs> days are gone. But the opportunity to play in a game seven full, is like, of course. <laughs> I, I was like, I was envious for the guys. Like I was happy for them. I wanted them to enjoy it, and it's so special and. You know, you don't get the opportunity to do it. I played 18 years. I played, I think you said, in four. And so, you know, it doesn't come around often. And so I was I was excited for the team, but also in a way envious because I'll never play in a game seven again. Facts. No, it's, I mean, that's, we have game fives in the WNBA. And mm -hmm. for three years straight, I played in three game five of fives. And you're right. There's something about that experience where that's why people want vets on their team. You know, like when people say like, oh, why, why is this guy getting picked up? And it's like, He's been there. He's going to know how to tell people what to think, how to feel and, and all of those different things. And that also kind of makes me think about like when point guards and controlling the game. And we're going to get into that later. But as a Hall of Famer, you played in the league 18 years, two time MVP, which is an elite group that only very few can claim. Very few point guards in particular can claim. But there's so much talk about legacy and championships. And Giannis talked about how that process matters. The process of all of it matters. You talked about you played in four game sevens. You were a part of the process. So do you think winning shapes a player's legacy? Like, do you have to win a championship for it to shape your legacy? Or does that really ma or the process matter? You know, I think it does. Like in the modern, like I never won a championship. And I think if I had of, uh, you know, your, your perceived legacy would be different. Um, we're really close with Dirk and his family and the Finleys. Like we played together in Dallas and we're family friends and we, you know, go on vacations together. And like, that is a, you know, a cherry on top of their resume, you know, and for them to have, to have capped their career with the championship. So that is real uh, at the same time. Like this is all perceived, right? Like we all make, we make all this, all these narratives up. So you can also like create your own, perception right and so for me like yeah it, it hurts still a little bit that i didn't win a championship at the same time like life is so much bigger than basketball and the fact that i personally or my teams didn't get it done that's what makes it special to win must have played in four or five conference finals and i never got over the hump but gave it everything i had i was obsessed with my craft and i hope i'll be remembered as a great teammate leader and competitor um, but didn't win a championship. So I'm sure my legacy is, I guess my body of work speaks for itself. I had a great career, but it didn't have that cap on it. At the same time, like I got so much out of the game of basketball, uh, so many incredible memories, and there's so much more to life that's important to me um, that I'm busy living, not busy looking in the past and seeing what I what I accomplished and what I didn't accomplish. No, I love that because it is the bigger picture. Like people, I think if people understood the process of how hard it is 
to even lose in a conference finals. Like if people understood that that honestly, like, and I know like people are gonna be like, Oh, more of it. Like that honestly is tough. Like there's some teams that would love to make it to the conference finals. And then there were some teams that would love to make it to the finals as well. And everybody wants to win a championship. But if people really understood how hard the process was and how good everyone is, I mean, I was talking to Charles Barkley during a round table discussion and had Spike Lee, Jackie McMillan and all these other people on there it was called the great debate. And we were talking about who makes the rules for why something is a goat or the greatest or anything of that nature. I mean, because when you even look at MVPs awarded back to back, the MVP's most valuable player award was debuted in 1955. And there have been 14 instances by 12 people in which they have won back to back seasons. And you're one of them. So I don't want like, there's not really a lot of people that can be in that category. And so your legacy is defined by that. What was that time period like though? Like, I mean, and winning it once is one thing to do it again unheard of well first of all thank you um you know i was fortunate when i left dallas to phoenix you know that that team was a perfect fit for me you know they had won 26 games the year before i got there and i think we won 63 my first year 62 63 my first year but they needed a, a creator they needed a leader um and so it was a great fit for me um, and we had some really, I think in a way we impacted the game and, and I think we influenced the way it was played. We played fast, we played in transition, we played pick and roll and, and we're able to spread people out. And, and, um, I was able to create and, and that highlighted my strengths. You know, I think for me though, what's, uh, what really, what's important about that is the story. I'm a kid from the West coast of Canada. I didn't have NBA players in my neighborhood. You know I mean? I, I didn't like, there wasn't the access to the elite of the game, you know, we had Sonics games. On, on we had the like the Seattle TV stations uh, to get Sonics games, which helped us fall in love and see the game at, at the highest level. But it's a story of a, a kid who had a dream and a ball and a hoop, and would got obsessed with it and would go out and practice every spare moment and just kept chipping away. You know, I, I had one scholarship offer to Santa Clara that came late. Like I visited Santa Clara after my senior year. The, they came to see me like in my provincial championship. So it wasn't like they even, they even saw me until like the end of my high school year. So I could have very easily gone to a Canadian university or college. So like, that's the story of, I think just having a dream, having a passion for something, sticking to it, putting days on top of each other and never letting go. And so it's a story about becoming obsessed with something. And, and it just, I think is something that for me is, it means a lot to me because I think it's something that can transfer to other people in, in whether it's in basketball or whatever it is in life to believe, to make a plan for yourself, to be creative, to put pen to paper and, and build um, the life you want to build. And so that's really what it means to me. Basketball is beautiful and, and I love the game and it's given me so much, but life is bigger. And uh, there's a lesson in there, I think, for that I can share from my experience with everybody. No, I love that. And it makes me you talked about building and it makes me think about, you know, you have a new app called Block Training where you talked about, you know, you're a guy that loves movement. Movement is essential to everything. Your mental health, your mood, your sleep, your diet relationships are heavily influenced by the movement of the body. So just tell me about why you even wanted to start block training and about it. This all started in my career. You know, I was, uh, as you know, as I just said, you know, I had a one scholarship kid that just wasn't the biggest, tallest, fastest, most explosive player. I wasn't going to overpower people. I wasn't like, 
you know, at the end of the gene pool that some of these incredible athletes are that, that you're competing with. So I had to have this curiosity to try to win the margins. And so I, that led me to like, what are the best practices in like training, skill acquisition, recovery, diet, sleep, all these things. And now these things are all pretty common, but 20, 25 years ago, wasn't nearly as common. And so I went on this kind of journey to try to find out how I could improve and how I could compete in different ways. And, you know, one of the ways that I, that had a huge impact on my life was really training myself to move well, movement training. And I, I got to work with Dr. Rick Celebrini, who's now, you know, he, we were two, two guys from the West coast of Canada. Now he's the head of sports science for the Golden State Warriors and had a big impact on, uh, on the Warriors, but just a, a brilliant movement, uh, mind and genius. And just so a lot of the fundamentals though, that I learned in my career, I thought I, I learned where it could be really impactful for everybody. So just little principles of movement, like mobility, stability, balance, coordination, the fitness industry, we're taught you have to go out there and you have to, you know, walk or run for an hour, three times a week. You know, I think that can be very inaccessible to a lot of people. Um, I think there's a smarter way to do this. We're talking about a lot of people that maybe have a, they're intimidated to, to start. So you have a daily eight routine about for something like, I think I read that, or I might've saw on Good Morning America. First of all, you were on Good Morning America. And I think you're hinting to the point of you create a routine that like you could actually get into a routine of it. You don't have to almost derail your schedule to do this daily eight routine, right? That's right. So, so that was the, the one of the evolutions of this whole concept was I wanted to share like the movement training principles that I'd learned because I think they can extend people's health span, right? So we talk about lifespan in the United States, average lifespan is 77. Average health span, which is a growing term, is your good health years where you're active, you're living your best life and you're avoiding chronic disease. That's 63 and kind of plateauing. So like our good years are kind of plateauing, but we're living longer because of medicine. We should be able to close that gap where people can live a decade or two more at, at a high level where they're having a great quality of life. And so fundamental to, to health span are exercise, mental health, diet, sleep, and social interaction. But exercise, and we say movement because the fundamentals of movement are purposeful quality movement are going to be long lasting and longevity inducing. But exercise is also research shown to help sleep, to help mental health, to help dietary choices and to be the people that are, are more active are more likely to be socially interactive. So movement is a trigger for all the pillars of health span. So what I really want is to make it accessible for people. And so then I said, it doesn't matter if I have, you know, Rick Salarini and, and the, or the best methodology in the world, if people aren't going to make a healthy habit out of movement, we're not going to make an impact. So I really started to study the habit sciences and what it takes to create a habit. And one of the principles of habits is to make it almost harder to fail to begin. So eight minutes. Is that why you, know, you made it so small? Yeah, I was going to say, is that why you pretty much shrunk it down eight minutes in your day? Makes you almost you almost feel guilty if you don't do it because it's like, oh, I couldn't do eight minutes to my to my movement today, to my body, to my health, to my mind. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And so and so what it is is like it's whether it's you that's an elite athlete that uh, wants to just stay super fit and active. It could be something you do before you go work out or whatever it is that you, that you want to do. Or it's someone that's really, I don't know where to start. and But I know I fail every time I got to go to a group fitness class or I got to start a running program. I, it's too much. I don't know how to fit it in my life, especially when we get to our 30s. We wake up not feeling quite the same. We have a career. We might have a family. We have all sorts of obstacles. 
So creating a healthy habit, if you can't invest eight minutes, you know, I'm not sure how else I can help you. So, <laughs> like there's nothing else you can do for them, Steve. <laughs> right. So we try to make it uh, this, this, we're going to give, to give you a pathway to create a healthy habit and, and hopefully you do it every day, but, if, and at minimum you do it every other day. But what you do is you, you, you hopefully at some point in your day have eight minutes to do mobility and stability. There's three different intensities. So my mom in her seventies could do intensity one and you can build your way up or you could stay at intensity one. And at the end of the eight minutes, if you want to stick around because you're warm and this is all you're going to do today physically, there's a four minute Tabata. But if all you want to do is the eight minutes or all you want to do is four of the eight minutes, you are now creating a healthy habit if you can do it consistently. What the habit sciences also say is once you create a healthy habit, they beget more healthy habits. So now you start to make better choices. You're more active. You're more likely to make better dietary choices and improve your mood. So that was a big thing for me is I'm a super active person. I play tennis and soccer like, you know, four or five, six times a week, depending on the week. I get a sweat. Every, yeah, I get a sweat every day, really as much because I'm a physical person as because of my mental health. You know, I can't sit until I've moved. But for me doing the daily and creating it and then doing it, which was kind of based off things I do in the morning anyways, while I'm getting the kids ready for school, I like get my little 10, 15 minutes when they're settled to like get some movement in. But I built it. And what I realized by doing it every single day and being religious about it is that I start my day with an accomplishment. I now have momentum. I'm in a better mood. I have presence. I can now invest in my relationships from a, a position of, of strength rather than you know, I'm not quite here. I'm thinking about a million things. I, you know, I'm, I'm not organized in my mind. So it's like the mood, the mental health, the ability now to take on your day, the choices you make after doing that or starting your day in that way. And this is designed for everybody. So whether you are going to go to the gym and lift big weights, this is a great warm up for you. Whether you're going to go play a sport, great. If you're someone that's just looking to create a fitness routine or a healthy habit, this is a place to start and a place to stay with as you grow through it. Or as you now, maybe you, you make this a healthy habit and then you become a runner or a cyclist or you play a sport. But there has to be an avenue for people to move and extend their health span through movement. It's interesting you talk about your mental health so much because I would think that when you played in the NBA, did people value mental health as much as we value it now because it's great to hear you say that because a lot of times even I would say even when I played it wasn't as valued as much as it is now so this is almost like a new beginning or a new age type of athlete 100% I, I'm glad that now we talk about mental health when I I remember maybe my first two years in the league having a lot of anxiety but didn't even know what it was like we, we didn't express it. You, you just were like, why do I feel this way? Why am I so nervous? Like, you know, after lunch on the day of a game, like, this is crazy. This is not healthy. I, but I didn't know, like, you're anxious. Let's talk this out. Let's figure this out. Let's, let's realize why. I was just like, bury that, bury that, internalize that, get rid of that so I could keep going, be there early, stay late keep competing, fighting, you know, I got my way through it, but that's not, it's not always the way, right? Like not everyone has a path through that. And so movement, I mean, exercise has, has been proven to be by far the most effective uh, antidepressant and most relevant mood booster, all those things. But more importantly than that, I'm hopefully that we can make an impact on people's mental health. It's just great that people can talk about it now because we all right. have to build our minds and our, and our mentality and our willpower and, and our mood and all those components of, of being able to navigate life. And so it's a, it's a powerful tool that now we're open to expressing it because it wasn't definitely wasn't always the case. No, I love that. It seems like you built box training almost off of athlete tendencies where they say athletes, you 
can do a book, like put a timer on when he walks in the building, what their schedule is. And so getting into a routine we know as athletes is really everything. And that's kind of why I wanted to talk to you about point guard to point guard, because whenever you look, I'm sorry, block training is what I meant to say, but whenever you talk about point guard to point guard, I think that that's what like point guards do. They control, like you even said it, like you're like, huh, I'm internalizing it. I'm getting rid of it because every day point guards have to be okay. You know, like there's certain things that point guards, you can't walk into the, like if you walk into the gym and your energy isn't right, it's going to be so noticeable because point guards have this added pressure to every day, bring it, know what's going on, have a good positive energy. I would say in this day and age, has the term point guard changed almost in a sense of that's not necessarily all the requirements? I've never heard that before. I think you really made a great comment there. Um, one, I think the point guard position has changed. It's now become more like a first point of attack rather than like the person in charge of running the team. But your comment about the mood of the point guard being so important and infectious because you are the point of attack, whether you're an organizer, a facilitator, or a scorer, you have the ball, you are the first kind of image that your teammates see when they start a possession or at either end of the floor. And so I never thought about it that way, but that is that is a big responsibility to be as even keel, to be, as you said, okay to, and, and not even keel, even keel under pressure, but more than okay, just in general, like, right? like you have to have an infectious, an infectious energy most of the time, or else you're not really handling your responsibilities as a point guard. So I, I think that's really interesting. I've never heard someone talk about it in those terms, but that is a, a really important measure of being a connector is being in a, in a good mood or bringing positive energy or not bringing negative energy or bringing the room down. So that that's an astute point, but I do think it has changed today. Um, I also feel for this generation of players, you know, they grow up with social media and there's just, it's such a different all encompassing thing that has affected them. I feel for them. It's unavoidable. It's the world they grew up in and it's not going away. So we're not changing that. It's like we have to learn to adapt and handle it. And so that's just another element that players today have to recognize and have to deal with. And that can be very difficult. So, yeah, I think the point guard's role has changed, but I think that old school DNA can also be a huge, huge part of a successful point guard and a successful team. No, I love that. And you talked about adjusting and it's always difficult when a point guard has to adjust. You could become a vet where your role could change, but you're still supposed to be leading your group and leading your team. So you played 18 years in the NBA. You also coached, but what is it like navigating that role to where you went from MVP to now your minutes are not the same, but you want to still be the same leader? Like what is that adjustment period like because we see it a lot of times in players you know Russell Westbrook had to come off the bench for the Lakers in, in the beginning like how do you adjust when you're a point guard and you're trying to lead but you're not as big of a role anymore that is the mortality of an athlete right you you yes. go through that stage especially elite athletes you go through that stage where you have the identity formed around this ability and history and and then all of a sudden you're not quite the same and usually you're the last to recognize it because you still have the identity and the competitive spirit and you still can do it in glimpses so you still feel and identify with that person and so it can be really challenging for players at the back end of their career you know for me I went to the Lakers as a free agent you know was it 2012 and so I was 38 
I just played in the All-Star game as a 38-year-old, my last All-Star game. Legendary. And First of all, you this is what? <laughs> At 38, you played in your last All-Star game? Yes, but my, my point, and not so much to pat myself on the back, is to say at that moment in time, I still thought that I was that dude. You know what I mean? I thought, <laughs> I'm going to bring this to the Lakers. And, of course, like, probably was declining more than I recognized. And then I also, my first or second game with the Lakers, I, I bumped knees and broke uh, my tib fib joint on the inside yeah. and it was it took me like man six eight weeks to get over it but what happened was it really bothered my nerve system and i had already had a back issue that i'd managed my whole career and there's kind of this theory in neuropathy that there's two nerve interruptions it can be like a, ma a more of a major issue and so i my my issue was like yeah probably slowing down a little bit but more than that it, it was like i couldn't recover so like my level would drop for two or three games, uh, you know, and I couldn't kind of recover from, from playing like I could. And so it, that was a hard, hard, hard thing to go through. And one of the things that helped me through it was a friend of mine sent me this article, an old article about an Eastern European uh, athlete, I believe, like an Olympian. And, and it was built on this old, maybe Russian or Eastern European adage that the athlete dies twice. And so, like, we all die a natural death in our life, but the athlete dies at a young age and has to kind of be reborn as someone else. And so, if you look at it in that, those terms, it can really be a benefit to you because the last thing you want is, is to never kind of grieve over that former self and still identify with that person that actually is never showing his face again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause father Tom is undefeated. It's right. So whatever the mechanism <laughs> is to be able to grieve and move on and become somebody else, which isn't easy. Even if you, you know, have the steps laid out for you because you're still a human being. You still like just, just strange things. Like I remember it took me six to 18 months to kind of go through that process and be very like pointed about it. Be very like, you know, clear that I'm going through this. This is going to be difficult. Admit it and try to work through it. And there would just be days where you'd be like, fine, fine, fine. And then one day you'd be like, yeah, it, it really leaves a hole not to be able to drive downtown and show off in front of 18,000 people. Yes. Cause you were at the top of the top. Like a lot of people don't make it to the top of the mountain. And so you made it to the top of the mountain. Like that's what, where you were. And then now you're not even on the mountain. Yeah. You know, right. Yeah. You just want to climb. And, and so you can imagine, if you don't deal with it, if you don't face it head on and try to deal with it, it's going to be really difficult. You know, it's going to, it's going to present itself in other ways in your life. And so accepting it and still working through it, because accepting it's one thing, but you still are an emotional being. You still have to go through that. And so, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting way too deep into, no, into what I this is. I love it because that's, this is real talk. Like this is what every athlete, not every athlete, but maybe a lot of athletes will experience and people don't really talk about it because and just now we're talking about mental health for athletes. So nobody was definitely talking about it when you were retiring or, or getting at the end of your career. And we're talking about the end. I'm going to ask you a couple quick questions before you go, but we're talking about the end of the career, but what about the beginning? You know, you're a coach and you've evaluated talent a lot. Victor Wambignana has been a name that people are saying is a talent that is generational. Have you seen any of his tapes? What do you think about his game? Do you think he's one of those generational talents? I've seen the clips and I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, you think about the potential of a player, his age, his dimensions to have the, you know, the ability to move with that frame, but also to be able to handle the ball and um, shoot from deep, shoot off the dribble with dexterity. But what I think is really fascinating is like, his rim protection could be 
perhaps the best of all time. We don't know. We don't know what is how he matriculates and what his mentality is. But like to be that kind of tall, have that length, and have the feet that he has, and be able to move like that. You know, he, he especially in today's game where you have to cover space. You know, in the old days you could be a big dude that could hang out around the basket and kind of protect the rim that way. Nowadays you got to be able to move because you're going to be stretched. You're going to be out in space guarding different positions. So to have that length and be able to cover that much airspace and ground, you know, he could be like a historic rim protector and defender. Even though I think most people get caught up in seeing him make step back jays off the dribble, but. Um, you know, the total package is very exciting. And I think, uh, you know, it's going to be uh, fun to see what he what he can become and, and it'll be incredible for fans to watch that journey. Love it. Love it. OK, so last question. We're with the Hall of Fame point guard. So Ray Allen just gave his Mount Rushmore. But I'm curious, who are your top five point guards? And I'm asking him this on the spot, you guys. I'm just letting you wow. know, like this question is on the spot. Not a lot of time to think, but not the normal Mount Rushmore that everybody says. And I also think that. There's eras, and I'm going to say because I had the great debate, so there's eras and all of these different things, but just from your perspective and your opinion, who are five point guards that you gravitate towards? Yeah, I mean, it, that, again, like I'll preface it by saying like Bob Cousy was the best for for generations, but was Oscar Robertson a, a, you know, a point guard or was he you know, a, a combo or a point forward? So you say all those things, but I would say, you know, you know clearly Magic Johnson – um, for me, is is kind of top of the list. Um, Isaiah Thomas was my hero growing up. That's who I wanted to play like. You know, that's that's who I wanted to be like. You know, like I saw someone that you know wasn't going to overpower people or jump over people. Uh, that was amazing. Um, you know, I, I think it's hard for me not to look at this late the latest generation. There's so many great point guards. Chris Paul. I mean, he's put himself in that category as well. But there's the Jason Kidd, Gary Payton, mm-hmm. John Stockton. So. I'm not giving you four, but I'm giving you a bunch of names of people that, you know, I think have had a big impact in the game. Steve Nash. Well, I mean, it's, you know, to be honest with you, like I'm not a, for me, like these are opinions. So to be thought of in that category with some of these guys is like, I couldn't ask for anything more of a kid with one scholarship uh, who grew up in an English household playing soccer on the West coast of Canada. So it's a, uh, it's been an incredible journey. And, uh, you know, I admire so many incredible point guards, and there's there's more coming up every day. I mean, I love Shea. Shea's unreal. So um, there's so many great point guards to come in this this current generation as well. No, I mean, I love that. And like we said, we said all the things before to know that there's not a top five. There's really not. That's why those are people he gravitated towards. But of course, of course, of course, we're adding Steve Nash in that list. Two-time MVP. Been to all the, like, just changed the game, even how you played. Keeping the dribble, like, okay, keeping the dribble alive and just never stopping. That was you, where people even called it that. The Nash under the basket, where you don't don't pick up your dribble. You just keep circling around. You have something named after you that came after you for point guard. So, man, I thank you for joining me. And also, too, we were talking about a lot of Canada. WNBA had the first preseason game in Toronto. That was amazing. Sold out in minutes, 17,000. I mean, like, so, I mean, I know, like, I didn't, were you able to go? Were you there? You probably weren't because I know you should no, probably go. No, I consumed a lot of the clips and, you know, we've had a really strong national team women's program and got more and more, you know, young girls playing at a super high level and making the WNBA. So it's beautiful to see so many young Canadians come up and get into the WNBA and for that, that game to be sold out in Canada, I think proves like we got to keep investing in women's sports. Like it's amazing how far 
women's sports. You know, I'll, I'll look primarily at, at basketball and soccer, but like face so many obstacles. And here we are like selling out in minutes in Toronto, getting 60, 70,000 at women's champions league games in, in Europe. Like we got to keep investing in, in, in our, in our youth and our women. And uh, it's beautiful to see Canada support the women's game like that. Absolutely. Anytime you're in Atlanta, please come bring your daughters to a game and make sure y'all go check out the app. Block training, I'm telling you right now. If you ain't got eight minutes, I don't know what to tell you. Hall of Famer <laughs> Steve Nash, thank you for joining us on Montgomery and Company. Amazing. Thank you, Renee. It's a pleasure to meet you. Big fan. Sometimes when you talk to people, it's really easy to see why they are successful or why they became who they became. Like Steve Nash and the way that he thought and the way that he even thinks now, there's no question that he was going to be successful and even with block training and everything that he's doing is going to be successful. I mean, has already been successful, not only as a player, but as a coach, making it to game sevens when some coaches want to make the playoffs, struggle to make the playoffs. I mean, just different things in his life and his career. And it's going to be no different post career. That's kind of what we talk about all the time with athletes. It's those things you learn when you're an athlete that carry on for the rest of your life. Hopefully you teach your kids and it becomes a generational thing, just like here at MoCo. See y'all next week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.